Welcome, everyone, to It Simply Isn't Done, the Sermon Recap Podcast. I'm Reverend Jess Davenport. And I am Reverend Barry Petrucci. We are the pastors at Chapel Hill Church. And together we are the, the Irreverent Reverends. And uh, like the name would suggest, this podcast is the message from Sunday, where we share the scripture and then the sermon, and uh, we meet you back for some reflection on that message. There will be an opportunity to, if you look down in the notes, you will see a place where you can go directly to the reflection. If you already listened to the scripture uh, on the sermon, or if you just want to skip them all together and uh, just hear what we have to think about it, um, you can go there. We're happy you're here. We are indeed. So the series is Picture This for the six Sundays in Lent, and um, each week we'll have a picture. It might be an artistic representation, it might be a photograph, um, and it will be um, projected, but also in some way represented in the sanctuary with a porch. Uh, that porch is a space where we move from, uh, from the porch to the altar, and uh, the structure we have allows you to see through right to the altar. This was Lent week four in the midst of our Picture This series. <laughs> and Barry preached um, on grief. That was that was the word and the image yeah. guiding us through grief, through um, Samuel's story. First Samuel, mm -hmm. a book that everybody goes to. A constant uh, source of <laughs> knowledge and wisdom for us today. It is actually a really interesting book. It really is. And I'm grateful um, you explained a little bit of it in your sermon. So if you, in this moment, hear the scripture and think, mm, I'm not sure I can place that, just hang on a little bit and listen to the sermon. And we'll catch you on the other side for some reflection. The scripture today is from 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. I invite you to listen. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me the one whom I name to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? He said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. A word of God that is still speaking. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, we've been on a journey together in this series called Picture This. And uh, we've had this amazing, well-built structure here on the chancel that some of you have 
wonderfully appreciated or really can't wait until we're all done with it. <laughs> Maybe some mixture of both. Uh, what we've been trying to do is to remind us that um, this series about, is about our moving from the porch to the altar. Uh, and there have been changes uh, along the way, um, some subtle, and you probably missed them. And there have been pictures that have gone with our preaching. And this week, uh, my picture is of a sheer rock face from our trip to the Holy Land a couple of weeks ago. And out of that sheer rock face at Petra, um, there is life emerging. I want you to keep that in mind as you see that later on. The other thing is that um, our porch this week has one child's chair. It is a reminder that sometimes folks go out of our life, and it is time for grief. So we began week one. Jess talked uh, about the creation story, particularly Adam and Eve, and the image was leaves. Uh, we were talking about uh, the fig leaves and man and woman being afraid. Uh, they were shamed and how shame prevents us from entering fully into relationships. And then we went to John 3.16, the story of uh, Nicodemus, a leader among the Sanhedrin of the Jews, going to Jesus by night, not wanting to be seen. And it was about being born, born again. Being born is coming into light, a newness of light that moves us from having to creep around and sneak around to being bold in our identity as children of God. And then last week, Jess uh, preached on the story of the Samaritan woman. Jesus brings his need to a Samaritan woman because he was thirsty. In a world that often tells us what we need in order to sell us what we need, we are left not knowing how to name our need, and Jesus instructs. This week... I want to ask you, is it fair for me to assume that most of you have not been digging into your Old Testaments, the Hebrew text lately, <laughs> particularly that you've not been digging into 1 Samuel? It looks fair to assume that. Um, how, well, how many of you have actually been looking into 1 Samuel? Okay. <laughs> A couple. Uh, well, let me review it. How do I consolidate? Um, so Israel had not heard from God in quite a while. At least, not, at least uh, no one who was listening was passing that word on terribly effectively. The people had separated themselves further and further from the vision that God held for them. The priests were, well, the priests were corrupt. And nearby nations saw the weakness and threatened Israel's claim to the land. Even Eli, Eli, who was a high priest who raised Samuel up and helped Samuel hear and understand the call of God, even Eli is not serving God well or faithfully. Israel needs to know that God is in their presence. They need to know, too, that they are in God's presence. They need someone. God gives the people Samuel. God gives the people Samuel to be a judge. Now, this kind of judge is not like our idea of a judge with a gavel. This is someone called and anointed by God to be a kind of leader slash prophet. 
Samuel speaks the word of God to the nation and instructs them just how to be a faithful people of God. Alas, though, Samuel grows old, as we all do, and the nation is attacked by long-standing enemies seeking opportunity, and the people rise up and go to Samuel and demand that he appoint a king. We need a king. We need a king. If we have a king, everything's going to be okay. Well, we've been in that place. Just give us the right leader. Everything's going to be fine. And that goes pretty well, doesn't it? Samuel has learned the lessons of history and tells the people to chill out and trust God above and beyond human leadership. You really, really don't want a king, people. But the people do what people do. They did not learn from the past, and they did not listen to Samuel. So God shrugs God's rather significant shoulders and gives them a king. Okay, you want a king, you get a king. They get King Saul. Saul is... How shall I put it? Well, Saul is a lot. He's a lot. Saul is, you know, a piece of work, to put it bluntly. He is a coward. He's more than a little foolish. He's remarkably disobedient to God who managed to get him on the throne of Israel in the first place. He relentlessly seeks the approval of people while ignoring, ignoring both the historical and the contemporary word of God. Saul steps way outside of his responsibilities and puts the people at odds with God and with each other. He does not do well. He does not well attempt to keep the law of Moses and is not terribly concerned with whether Israel lives as God's righteous people or not. He doesn't seem to care much. And so our text for today, it begins with Samuel grieving grieving over the largely wasted monarchy of Saul. Saul, after all, is tall, he's dark, he's handsome, and by all appearances has everything in the world going for him. It is arguable that early on he was, he was a leader of God and, and courageous in that leadership early on. And yet there are other examples of things not going quite, oops, I clicked too many times, sorry. <laughs> Our text begins with Samuel grieving, grieving over the largely wasted monarchy of Saul. It does not always go well, even to the point that God, not once but twice, grieves, grieves that God had ever made Saul king in the first place. We may wonder whether God could not see that this was what was going to end up happening. But we don't get to ask that. At least the scripture doesn't ask that. And yet there are other examples of things not going quite as God imagined they would go or expected them to go. You might remember Genesis 11, maybe not Genesis 11, but you maybe remember the story of the Tower of Babel. God grieved over having made the people in, in much the way the people were grieved before the great flood. Oh, these people I created, they keep doing this stuff, and God grieves. 
In our text, Samuel seems to share God's sense of sorrow, this time over the failure that Saul had become, well, Saul had become sort of a jerk, if I can say that between us. Samuel regrets his role in the making of King Saul, and he grieves. God enters the chapter in such a way that we might wonder whether God had forgotten the times when God grieved. God comes up rather stridently asking, hey, Samuel, how long are you going to grieve, Saul? Well, that doesn't seem very godly and sensitive. Now, I asked how many of you read 1 Samuel recently, and there were a bunch of you. Um, but now I ask, how many of you have known grief in your life? A few more. A few more. If we are honest with ourselves and each other, we've all experienced some grief in our lives, some response to loss in our lives. Grief runs the gamut from the toy we lost to the goldfish that we had to flush, to the family pet we had to put down after 15 years. Grief runs the gamut, to grief over a lost job, grief over a child that's emotionally lost or drug addicted or both. Grief runs the gamut to a parent in hospice, a spouse withdrawn, a relationship broken. Grief runs the gamut. My brother, who died at 52. My dog and my cats I had to put down. My parents who passed. My congregants who left angry and mostly silent. Folks, some of my best friends who unfriended me on Facebook. <laughs> Grief runs the gamut. Grief can be triggered by all kinds of losses, right? Yet, grief is held in the heart, in the mind, in the spirit, in the body, in very much the same ways, whatever the trigger. Grief goes to regret for all lost, for that done or left undone. Grief goes to the plans that remain on the table for the words that never got spoken. Grief deals with the hugs and the kisses that were never given. Grief is the one last chance to fill in the blank. We know this. We know this, and you all could add to all of these one-line examples of grief triggers. You have them, and you know what they are. We know this, and yet the human doing, that's the reality of the human being, because we're not, we're not really satisfied with being, we're always doing. The human doing has evolved, has been culturally scrubbed, been worn down, been polished to do everything possible to not only avoid triggers of grief, but to make ourselves move through grief as quickly as we possibly can. We do everything possible by staying clear of triggers, by doing things like not having the dying remain in the family home anymore. We do it by digitally or physically unfriending before the pain of a difficult but necessary confrontation happens. We do it by separating ourselves out from family rather than seeing disappointment in them when we know 
a job loss is coming, when our economic reality is changing. Again, there is more, and you can fill in the blanks. Then when grief actually comes, we do our absolute best to push it down. We do our best to force ourselves, ironically, to suck it up, to move through it, to move on. I'm really fine, really, just, you know, I'm, I'm doing okay. It's just... I was reading uh, Melinda Smith, Lawrence Robinson, and Jeannie Siegel in a, a little document, in Coping with Grief and Loss. And they say grief is a natural response to loss. It's the emotional suffering you feel when something or someone you love gets taken away. Often the pain of loss can feel overwhelming. You may experience all kinds of difficult and unexpected emotions, from shock to answer, or excuse me, to anger, to disbelief, to guilt, to profound sadness. The pain of grief can also disrupt your physical health, making it difficult to sleep, to eat, or even think straight. These are normal reactions to loss. And the more significant the loss, the more intense your grief will be. Close quote. We know this. We know this. How is it then that we read God in the beginning of our text saying to Samuel, just how long are you going to grieve over Saul? Samuel, I've rejected him as king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil. Let's get out there and find a better replacement, shall we? Nice, right? Samuel is disappointed and is not seeing beyond the disappointment. Samuel is grieving and is not seeing beyond the grief. God does not negate that disappointment or grief, but somewhat less than gently gets Samuel to move on, carrying the disappointment, carrying the grief, and moving. In the fullness of Scripture, we do not see God coddling folks during grief. But we do see God continually and graciously calling the human out of grief to move in joy. Grief, moving in joy, the two can and do, you see, exist simultaneously. They are not polarities. We get to hold them both tenderly. It is the point, I think, of Psalm 22. Three, the shepherd's psalm, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. I can grieve and rest in the provision of God and find joy in God and in God's creation. I can grieve and rest in the provision of God and find joy in God and in God's creation. Those who grieve somehow find ways, somehow learn ways to stay, to stay sensitive to signs of God's provision of comfort, of encouragement, of healing, even joy, even joy. Another Psalm 30 may be more to the point. Thou has turned my, love the King James of this, sorry. Thou has turned my mourning into dancing for thee. Thou has taken off my sackcloth. Those are my grieving clothes. Thou has turned my mourning into dancing for thee and girded me, dressed me with gladness. I have seen amazing moments of transformation in grief, transformation in mourning and and be clear, 
Nothing here is asking us to put on smiley faces for the sake of others. Nothing is asking us to grin to convince others that we are just fine. The storytelling and laughter at retirement parties, even in funeral receptions, do not take an accurate temperature of what's really going on for folks. Grief abides with us for a long time. It's a process that may go deep and it may go dark, but it will have moments of pure joy in memories old and in memories just being made. It is all okay, folks. Grief does not require us to remain cloaked in mourning. In fact, it becomes a bit of a danger for us if the grief gets transformed into guilt, if we think we are not grieving in the right way, if we are not sullen enough, if we let a smile slip, or if we tell a joke about that which we grieve, that one we loved so very much and can still laugh about. The human condition requires us to grieve in the fullness of ourselves and to be open to hearing God or agents of God say, yes, yes, you are grieving, and there is still life in that, and there is still life to be lived. God is calling Samuel to open a new chapter for himself, for God, and for God's people. As much as Samuel feels responsible for Saul, God is asking him to find another, a king of God's own heart. Samuel is in the midst of grief, being called to, birthing some, to birth something brand new. And so Samuel executes the search in the midst of his grief, executes the search in the family of Jesse for the new king, who will be David, who will be a lot. But that's another story. I want to ask you to do some things this week. This week. Think about something or someone you are grieving. How consciously have you allowed yourself to be honest in that grief? All that you miss, all that you long for. How intentionally have, has the laughter come with the tears? And this week, I'd like you to think about that someone or something you grieve and consider holding to a memory that brings you joy. And there are those memories. Otherwise, you would not be grieving so fully. Maybe you need to take out pictures or objects that remind you of that someone or something. Do that this week. Finally, consider doing something that will honor that someone or something you have grieved. Maybe make a donation in honor or volunteer or paint a picture or write a poem, whatever you do. Maybe even write a letter to that someone or something marking your appreciation and your process in your grief. Let them know where you are and let them know that your love has not left. Your tasks for the week. The people of God say, amen. All right, welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. Wow, Mr. Cotter. Who doesn't like a little kata? <laughs> <laughs> <The> kata. <laughs> wow. Well, Barry.
Mary, what did you want people to get um, from your message? You know, the more I developed it, because it was um, lection, the, the texts were lectionary, right? And initially, I was thinking Psalm 23 was going to be the central text. And uh, as, as you and I you know, first developed the series, I was thinking Psalm 23. And then I was kind of taken with the introduction in, uh, in the first Samuel text where, um, God, where, where Samuel is grieving Saul. And he's, it sounds like Saul has died. Well, Saul has not died at this point, but, but uh, Samuel is, Saul is, is grieving what Saul had become, what Saul represents. And God has uh, seems to have very little patience with that. So I was I was I was really amazed by that and wanted to do some more and looked at all the other places where God grieved the people in one way or another because the people were not doing what God thought they would do mm-hmm. or should do. So anyway, I, I wanted the people to get a, a broad kind of take a broad sense of grief and look at all the places in our lives where we carry grief and we may not even identify it because we so readily think about grief just in the narrow sense of, of the loss of a, of a close loved one. Yeah. And even, and even that, I don't think we, we do a great job right. with societally. Our message made me think about the difference between grief and grieving or mourning hmm. um, and how those are, uh, those are different. Because like you said, like grief can just live in your body um, and in your interactions, but the process of grieving or mourning and getting it out kind of helps us with that. And that's what we don't, we don't do a great job with, in my, in my humble opinion. <laughs> well, and I think that's right. And I, I don't think the faith has helped any. It used to be that the faith was, was the place, the community engaged in grieving um, with and on behalf of those who've been closest to the loss, mm-hmm. um, and and time was was allocated for that, and we've done everything we can to kind of truncate all that, yeah, and, and to and to not uh, to not even do funerals in the sense of this is an offering up of this beloved one, and um, and a transition from our hands to the hands of God. We do celebration of life because yeah. we like parties better. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not that's not to as a it's not to denigrate the celebration of life that is part of it um, but it's only part of it mm-hmm. yeah I remember um, back in seminary just learning about how other traditions have much um, just have better well-developed systems in place and ritual around grief and how um, you know I can only speak for American Christianity but we've really let ourselves be bought into the culture which kind of says like yeah let's let's compress the grieving and let's make it around everyone's schedules and let's not do anything that's too much of a downer <laughs> yeah. no Debbie downers here yeah yeah and and it, yeah we got to make it look like a party I mean it's uh, I look um, you know you and I both have experience pastorally uh, working with families Sneeze coming or not? I guess not. Um, working with families, and there, there is this kind of cultural alignment between what I spend and the depth of my grief and the extent of my love. Mm-hmm. And so the, the the industry has really made it about how much can you do, mm-hmm. how how 
how how extravagant can this be? And, and we've done it not just in grieving, but grieving is one of the places, and, and we would think it might be different, but it doesn't seem to be. Yeah, well, I think the the effect of all of that, um, you know, I don't, I can appreciate a celebration of life or a funeral, and I think those are important rituals, and, and they're meaningful. And I think for, you know, like the general population, they don't really distinguish between them. For me, it's more about the before and after care pieces that we kind of, we put so much energy as a community coming around someone in that particular, like I'm going to show up to the funeral or I'm going to show up to the celebration of life and that's how I'm going to show my support. And in reality, if you're the loved one on that day, it's it's certainly meaningful, but it's also a whirlwind. And then there are the weeks and the months afterwards and the birthdays and those times where we don't know how to to be a culture that supports someone grieving um, and we don't know how to grieve ourselves. I, was, I was, thought it was kind of funny. I'm like, oh, God, you're like kind of foreshadowing what everyone in society says. <laughs> you know, yeah. How long are you going to grieve over this yeah. particular loss? And I was also thinking about your message, as, as you were saying directly. Uh, the things that are um, that are lost that are not an individual. And we often tell ourselves, well, it's not that big a deal. I don't know why I'm feeling this way because, you know, I really shouldn't be. Nothing, you know, no one died of X, Y, or Z. And we can't really measure or name those losses um, or grieve them appropriately because we don't think we should be having them. It's kind of this weird cycle we do of what are we allowed to grieve or what is loss? Yeah. And it's, and it's interesting in the life of the church. We, as pastors, we get to eavesdrop on some of this. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and it's, it's kind of acceptable for people to say, Hey, someone close to me has died. I need your prayers. Much less so, around, hey, I lost my job. Mm-hmm. Much less so around, hey, I lost my dog. Um, or, or hey, fill in the blank. Um, yeah, my, like, my, hey, I lost my best friend. I lost my best friend. Or, hey, my, my brother is seriously struggling with addiction right yeah. now, and I've lost that connection because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the things we kind of eavesdrop on because there's a sense of embarrassment around that kind of loss, even though... It's real and felt. It's, it's real, yeah. it's felt, it's what it is to be human. Yeah. That loss accompanying us in a way. Um, I was curious to have a conversation with you about what it looks like um, to grieve as a pastor. Mm-hmm. Because we have this interesting role where um, a lot of the times the things we are helping our community grieve, we too are grieving. And it's tricky. It really is, because there's a kind of an expectation, again, a cultural expectation that the clergy remain rather stoic in the midst of whatever it is we're dealing with. Um, I, you know, I've given myself permission over the years to just feel what I feel and be okay with that with family and, uh, and friends, and it is, it is not unheard of for me to cry in the midst of uh, uh, these rituals of passing mm-hmm. um, but, but it's but it's tough because then then I mean the, the the thing that I don't want is to then become the one that needs to be cared about sure right yeah. so it's, you don't want that turn to happen so it's 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 delicate yeah I have thought about that too and that sometimes I can compartmentalize so well um, I really turn my anxiety over loss into helping other people grieve the losses. Yep. 
and I have to be more thoughtful about what does it mean for me to grieve this personally? You know, not, not in the spot, you know, not in front of everyone, not leading anyone, but what does it look like for me to personally grieve this such that I don't just do the thing, you know, the thing I don't want to do, <laughs> the thing I don't want to be, which is take my own anxiety or grief and um, not deal with it personally, but, you know, fuss around with other people and make sure that they can grieve the way they need to. Yeah, I think we, I think we easily become the Marthas in the room mm -hmm. that do do the busy work that certainly needs to be done, but it doesn't need to be done by us. Yeah, not and, certainly not always. And, and, and our, our being present, I mean, I, for instance, I try to get to the funeral homes during visitation um, to hang out in case somebody should want to, to talk, but also to kind of do some eavesdropping about what I can overhear about who this person was in other people's lives. Um, and that helps me in my own grief, but also helps me to form things that might be helpful to say in the funeral. Again, it's tasky on the one hand. On the other, it allows me to give space for, for my, own, my own stuff in the midst of that. And again, you know, some people I'm very close to and others, um, you know, we, we do funerals for people that need a funeral, yeah. whether we know them or whether we're intimately involved in that. Yeah. But, but hopefully in the process of developing, we've come into a pastoral relationship where the grieving has a place to come back. So is there a way you have found for you to personally grieve? Like, is there, is there a ritual or a method or does it just depend on the circumstance or situation? It depends a lot on the, on the situation, circumstances, situation. Um, I mean, some people we get close to in, mm -hmm. in our pastoral lives and, um, you know, I think I think about someone here who uh, I loved dearly. You know, it's that it's that sense of um, it wasn't a, like a lot of time with that individual, uh, old, but was very willing to share his story, and the story was rich and nuanced, and he was incredibly loving in the telling of that and sharing with that and asking me about about my story as well. Um, so there was this connection and that was that was a hard, hard death. And mm -hmm. that took me that took me a while to to move on from. Um, yeah. And and I, is there a ritual? I think the ritual I, I think two things. One is is to do the actual work of building funeral. Mm -hmm. So whatever the family, family comes wanting a celebration of life. And sometimes I'm able to help them see the value of, of funeral and that these are not mutually exclusive, um, but that we can do both the celebration of the life and the liturgical offering. Uh, and, and, and in the process of writing that, that's a piece of ritual work for me in, mm -hmm. in my own life. You know, I, I sometimes, so personally, I'm, I'm a very tactile person, and some of the things we end up doing at prayer stations, I don't know if people consider this, but if you, you know, if you attend the 11 o'clock service particularly, um, that's a service where we have a more kinesthetic response time. <laughs> so you can get up and you do things that are a little more tactile in the time that we respond to the message. And a lot of those things um, that we have you do 
they're not just, in our mind, meant to be only things you can do at church. They're meant to be rituals that might help you in a moment that you can kind of go out um, go out and, and do in the world. So um, for me, a lot of times um, I need to get outside and like just dig in dirt or tend or take care of something. Um, and that, that helps me think and process while also, you know, in my mind, contributing to life in some way. Um, I also, I love, you know, I like burning things. So I love a good fire. And if there's something that like, if there was a situation um, that I'm grieving or, you know, I remember um, one of my, one of my best friends got divorced and was too ashamed to really talk to any of us. And that was really painful for me for a long time. And eventually I just had to write out a bunch of stuff and like have a bonfire and just like let it go and say a prayer over it. And that was really meaningful for me. And so I need some of those kind of tactile things to do that. Sometimes I need to just go for a walk and let myself like, you know, kind of fume, but I need the kinesthetic processing. Um, additionally, the verbal processing, <laughs> which anyone around me uh, knows. Sometimes I just have to get words out of my brain, even though they're, I know they're not logical. And, you know, they, I probably won't even agree with them when I'm done saying them. There's just something about getting getting whatever out of me in some capacity to help me look at it in a new way. Yeah, my getting out is writing. Mm -hmm. And it's usually in some form other than prose. Um, and it's getting outside, it's walking. Mm -hmm. It is not It is not generally talking it out. <laughs> <laughs> is it burning things, Gary? Do you like to burn things? <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I, I have my moments, but generally not. Um, although... I, I'm not necessarily burning things, but I do like a good fire that I could sit in mm -hmm. because you see things in the depths of that fire that you don't see otherwise. Yeah. And it changes. And in our family too, we often, um, on the day someone was born or died, we'll light a candle and like we'll say words about them and, and kind of talk about them. And I, um, I offer up to you all some of the ways we do this just to help you all think through the ritual because the in distinguishing between the grief and the grieving we have to f make space for grieving and sometimes that's helpful if that's a little more regular or if there's a pattern to it and that's one of the beautiful things that i think church can offer um that i don't i don't know if enough people consider or think about it you know we've had space for lament here after certain things not well attended right Generally, and it's because no one, you know, everyone's like, well, that's a downer. You know, <laughs> like, like, you know, Good Friday is not can't, a well attended can't we service. Just have a beer, please? <laughs> no, yeah. So, you know, it's it's interesting to help to help a community um, when we have capacity lean into that. Um, sometimes it needs to be private, but it can also be communal. Yeah. So Sunday, I, it's it has not been my practice particularly to offer things for people to do at the end of the sermon. I did this week. You asked questions. I, I, I did. I asked some things for people to think about because, um, and it was a light, it was a very late thought to do this uh, because I was thinking about what people's responses might be and I wanted them not to walk away, particularly the nine o'clock. Uh, as you say, the 11 o'clock, we, we have stations and that was going to give uh, some, some tactile uh, opportunities to, to engage. But it, I thought it was impossible, important, not impossible, I thought it was important <laughs> that uh, folks go away with some things that they could do, that they could carry mm -hmm. whatever pain they might be feeling in the wake of, of, of the sermon. Because I, I know full well the folks in the congregation for whom 
grief is really close to the surface right now. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wanted to make sure that it had something to do with that. How did it feel doing that? Felt a, a, a it felt good. A <laughs> little bit, um, uh, a little bit formulaic because I don't usually do it. Yeah. But it was okay. It was okay. Uh, that was helpful for me. Um, listening to it to frame and think through. Like I need to. Um, I'm feeling these things from what you have said, but how do I name it and like where do I go? It was helpful with me and my grief and I don't you know I do that each week just because that's how my brain works but I think not every week we preach a, such a um, I don't know how to say this um, a sermon that like gets you in the feels as opposed yeah. to yeah, yeah your head and thinking about yeah. it like so it was a very like embodied you know this kind of visceral response and I'm like okay what do I do with this so it was helpful for me to have a to have it be named in a guide of like okay what what am I grieving because I feel it, so like I need to name the feeling right. and move from there. What do I do with it? And I had, I had three different people. I, I didn't ask them, not like a, a mad mob or anything, but three people saying, I really like the idea of writing a letter to mm -hmm. the person, mm -hmm. and I'm going to do that. Yeah. You know, um, great. Do, do that. And that, that keeps you connected, and it keeps you um, offering up all that stuff that's, that's taken over your mind, body, spirit. And um, you're able to do something with it, which is better. Yeah, it is, it is helpful to be able to have it out in the world. Yeah, for some of us it's easier than others. Yes, that's true. Um, did you go down any rabbit holes or the things you would have done differently? I don't think so. Once I hooked on to, once I hooked uh, more deeply onto the Samuel piece, um, as I was doing Psalm 23, I went down the little rabbit hole of Psalm 30 because I remembered that from a, an old camp song that we used to do um, with, with those lyrics. And it struck me that that was really where what I wanted Psalm 23 to say. And I think mm. it does, but not quite that boldly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you're like, guess what? We're moving over to grief. Thanks, yeah. Samuel. Yeah, well, the whole the whole use of Psalm twenty three uh, as a liturgical reading and at the second service as a video that I felt was, was pretty well done by the, the work of the people, uh, you know, I thought it all came together, and I didn't really, I didn't leave a lot on the cutting room floor, as they say. Mm -hmm. right. And yet, it wasn't terribly long. <laughs> Some weeks are like that. Some weeks are like that. Yeah, we were out early both services. Mm -hmm. Because I had to teach a tent, but it made it easier. <laughs> I mean, I got to teach. That's what I meant. I got yes. to teach. Well, some weeks you, you say what the, what the Spirit has for you and what you've worked up. And it's, yeah. It's what is needed. Well, next oh. week, um, it's Lent 5 already. Wow. It's breath. And uh, I'll be preaching about God breathing into the dry bones mm. from Ezekiel. <laughs> so we will see you there. Let it be so. Bye. <laughs>